a warm round of applause. Thank you very much for that very kind introduction. And thank, thank you all for coming, everyone. Um, this is great to be here. Uh, so yeah, I'll just talk a bit about my book, and then I'm going to read a bit from it, and then actually a bit of an experiment plan, which should go very well, very poorly, but looking forward to it nonetheless. Uh, so this is a book. So this is a book about books, but kind of written with numbers. Um, and essentially, it's not trying to reverse engineer the perfect novel or anything like that. It's kind of a celebration of books and kind of finding hidden patterns that you wouldn't know, uh, kind of unless you took a step back and looked through the data. Um, and just to clarify a bit, it's kind of coming from the writer's point of view. You know, Stephen King said in his book on writing, not to use LI adverbs, but if you read all, or if you counted all five million words he ever wrote, does he actually follow his own advice? Um, is there a difference between men and women and how they write about male and female characters? Uh, there's one chapter in the book where I kind of go through that, and just as an example, you know, females may describe their male and female characters as interrupting just as often as one another, but male characters actually skew where they have their female characters interrupting at a really kind of crazy rate compared to their male characters. Um, and the kind of more silly things, does an author's name grow after they get a New York Times bestseller on their book cover? Um, like, what is our favorite author's favorite words? Are there any kind of tick words that come through? Um, so I'm going to read, actually, the preface of this book, um, kind of go through it. It's actually based on a study that kind of inspired me to get more into this, uh, based on a study on word frequencies from over 50 years ago. And I'll get into the actual, uh, what the study was looking at soon. But back then, they had to cut through pieces of paper and kind of stack them up just to count the words and how often they appeared. And now, with kind of like the accessibility of files and just computers, it's very easy to go through and kind of find new and exciting stuff. Um, so thanks all for coming. I'm going to read, and then we will get through it. So this is actually a study that was done in the 1960s uh, on the Federalist Papers, uh, just to give some historical context, but I will get into the introduction. Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, or John Jay. For more than 150 years, historians argued over the authorship of 12 essays in the Federalist Papers, founding documents in the American march towards democracy. Though the essays are world-famous hallmarks in the lexicon of American history, the specific authors of each one remain unknown. The question of which founding father penned the essays had sparked such endless debate that it had devolved into a popular parlor game among historians. Just who exactly wrote the stirring arguments upon which our governing structure was based? The answer was hidden in the words themselves. But to find them, scholars needed not a close reading, but a close counting. They needed to look at the numbers. The mystery began in late 1787, when a series of essays advocating the ratification of the Constitution was published in New York newspapers under the pen name Publius. Shielding the true identities of the authors with the patriotic nom de plume was a somewhat farcical endeavor. In fact, of the near 4 million people living in the United States in 1787, all but three could be eliminated from contention. It was an open secret that Hamilton, Madison, and Jay were the authors, but none of the three wanted to step forward and admit to the rising, um, admit to writing any particular essays. Each had political ambitions, later rising to the ranks of Secretary of the Treasury, President, and Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, respectively, so they weren't without good reason. But their excess of caution left the mystery of the authorship intact, titillating history professors and armchair enthusiasts alike for many years to come. You might think that the scholars and astute politicos of the day would have been able to determine the authorship on their own. There were only three potential candidates, after all, 
each with his own political stand and style of communication. It would have been the equivalent of an anonymous editorial in the New York Times penned by Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, or Bernie Sanders, <laughs> or an unsigned manifesto by George W. Bush, John McCain, or Donald Trump. All might be coming from the same side, but they certainly weren't all identical. In 1804, a solution finally seemed to emerge. Hamilton wrote a letter to his friend Edgar Benson listing the author of each essay. Hamilton was, was preparing to duel Aaron Burr. He sensed both the historical significance of the Federalist Papers and of his chances of survival. He decided not to let his knowledge of the authorship die with him. This should have been the end of the mystery. A nation of curious observers had no reason to doubt Hamilton's first-hand knowledge. Yet 13 years later, soon after his second term as president ended, Madison put out his own list of authorship, one that differed from Hamilton's. Twelve of the essays that Hamilton claimed to have written were also claimed by Madison. <laughs> this reopened the debate with a new fervor, fueling spats among historians for more than a century. In 1892, future Senator Henry Cabot Lodge wrote on the topic siding with Hamilton, while noted historian E.J. Bourne went with Madison. Most historians tried to tease out the authors based on the political ideology presented in each essay. Would Madison really have argued for a central bank in those certain terms? Would Hamilton have supported the limits of Congress so freely? Or maybe that's something John Jay would have written. It wasn't until 1963, two centuries later, that the mystery was at long last solved. The definitive answer came from respected professors Frederick Mosteller of Harvard University and David Wallace of the University of Chicago. However, unlike the many professors who had attempted to solve the question before them, Mosteller and Wallace were not historians. They were not known for their scholarly work on early America. They had never published a paper on historical figures at all. Mosteller and Wallace were statisticians. One of Mosteller's most noteworthy papers before dealt with the World Series and whether or not seven games was enough to statistically determine the best baseball team. Just a few years prior to looking into the authorship program, Wallace had published a paper with the name Bounds on Normal Approximations to Students in the Chi-Square Distributions, which probably sounds as close to nonsense to you as the thought of probability functions solving historical mysteries sounded to the history professors in 1963. Mosteller and Wallace's methodology for ending the other debate had nothing to do with politics or ideologies. Instead, they were two of the first statisticians to leverage word frequency and probability. Their process was in some ways complex, featuring equations with factorials, exponents, summations, logarithms, and t-distributions. But the heart of their method was strikingly simple. Step one, count the frequency of common words and essays that we know Hamilton or Madison definitely wrote. Step two, count the frequency of those same words and essays where the author is unknown. And step three, compare these frequencies to determine the author of the disputed essence. Even before any of the fancy probabilistic equations came into play, the results of the statistician's approach seemed wonderfully obvious in retrospect. In the Federalist Papers, Madison used the word whilst in over half the essays in which his authorship had been confirmed, but he never once used the word while. Hamilton, meanwhile, used the word while in about one-third of his essays, but never used whilst. Mosteller and Wallace did not rely on a single word for their analysis, however. That would not have been statistically sound. Instead, they systematically chose dozens of basic words and then found the frequency of each word in the disputed essays. Many words, entirely non-political in meaning, turned out to have drastically different usage rates between the two authors. For example, Madison used also twice as often as Hamilton, while Hamilton used according much more frequently than Madison. Mosteller and Wallace had falsibility on their side. They could show that by using the same methods on paper where the author was known, they could determine the authorship with perfect results. Of the 12 disputed essays, 
Mostow and Wallace concluded that James Madison was the actual author of all 12. The question Mostow and Wallace asked and answered was limited in scope, but text analysis can answer a huge range of questions that have intrigued curious writers and readers for generations. Did Ernest Hemingway actually use fewer adverbs than other writers? How does reading level affect the popularity of a book? Do men and women write differently? Do writers follow their own advice? And is that advice any good? What, besides superficial spellings, distinguishes American and British novelists? From Vladimir Nabokov to E.L. James, what are our favorite authors' favorite words? The analytical approach to writing can be amusing and informative and often downright funny. Moreover, it can teach us about the writers we read every day and the words we use in our own writing. That's what we'll delve into in this book, devoting each chapter to a new literary experiment. The research won't be painfully complex, it doesn't need to be, and shouldn't be, in order to be worthwhile. Many obvious and intriguing questions about classic literature or the modern bestseller could be viewed through a statistical lens, but just haven't been framed that way yet. This book is about tackling these simple yet unique questions in a new way. It's a book about words that is paradoxically written with numbers. So that, the preface of my book, the introduction, is about the Federalist Papers and whether or not words were consistent throughout the authors there. And most of the rest of the book is actually about the novel uh, and how kind of writers function in that space. And, but the cool thing about the Monster on Wallace study on the Federalist Papers is that it showed that writers across different works and different times have a very reliable pattern of words used that can be kind of measured and shown to be their own. For example, you know, J.K. Rowling switched from a children mystery, uh, sorry, a children fantasy book to kind of an adult gritty book that she wrote under a pen name. But would you be able to tell, looking at her style, the word frequencies, that despite the genre and audience change, that this is the same novelist? So, as a bit of an experiment uh, in relation to this kind of literary fingerprint, uh, I've actually built an app that I want to test out here. So I know your phones are on silent, but if you can take them out, if you have an iPhone, if you don't have an iPhone, maybe partner up with someone who does. Uh, but if you haven't done it already, go to the App Store and search uh, MOA Literary Fingerprint, MOA as in the first two letters of Mo Stellar and Wallace. Uh, and you can download that. And as you do that, or as you look under the phone of someone next to you, uh, I'll do a little demonstration. So essentially, I'm using the same methods that Mostow and Wallace did in the 1960s in this little app. And obviously with today there's different things with artificial intelligence and more advanced methods, but this process is so simple, this is the same process they did with cutting out words, and I just wanted to test, is this still work today? Does it work on novelists and people who kind of write longer form things? Um, so once you've downloaded it, you'll get a little screen like this, and the default is Madison and Hamilton. I'm gonna demonstrate it, and I'm gonna send out uh, some papers after, and you can play along with so this is uh, the first paragraph of the very first Federalist paper. Uh, so how the app works, I don't know if you'll be able to see this as I do it, but you're just going to take a picture of the text, kind of perpendicular as possible. Um, hopefully the lighting is good. And then crop it around the box as tight as you can, just so you know your finger or your shadow or anything else is not in that. Um, and then you can choose the photo, and what this app will do is it will convert the image file to a text file and then run the analysis to see is this Madison or is this Hamilton, and again, it's not relying on phrases or anything like that. It's just looking at 70 basic words that Mosco and Wallace identified, they're all function words, 
they're here, A also, and, and very basic words. And it's this short sample, even this 200 word sample, enough to kind of guess who the most likely author is. Um, so I'm writing it now, it's a bit slow, it's gonna take about 30 to 90 seconds, but afterwards, hopefully, as long as I take the picture well enough, we'll also try to talk to you, uh, it will count the words and spit out the results. And then once I do that, um, I have different excerpts from Federalist Papers, no name on it, hopefully you guys can run it on your own. And on top of that, uh, I also have excerpts from different authors uh, built in, and you can run it on that. Or if you get a bit creative, go out into the bookstore, find your favorite author uh, who's also in this app, and try it on any page in any of their books. Um, should hopefully only be a few more seconds for <laughs> time here. Um, and this is a beta version of the app, so there are some blinary typos in it, but we will, we will fix those before they get released to the public. Alright, so it has transcribed it. Hopefully that was close enough. So it guesses that based on the words upon, by, and there, that this is more similar to Hamilton than Madison. And in fact, uh, I mean, I selected this ahead of time, so I knew it was going to happen. But this, is, this was the first federal paper, and this was written by Alexander Hamilton. Um, and we know that both from Hamilton and Madison are so. Give it up for Hamilton. You want to just take a random page uh, if you download the app. So these all are signed by Publius, which is the pen name that they originally put on the Federalist Papers when they were published. Um, and the number at the bottom, don't crop those into the text you don't need to. Uh, that corresponds to the number essay of Federalist Paper that is. And once you've done it, there's a chart up here. Either shout out the number or come up and see it. And it will tell you whether or not it was a confirmed Hamilton essay, a confirmed Madison essay, or an essay that people believe uh, to be written by Madison, but that was disputed at the time. Uh, so if we just go around. Yeah. Um, so hopefully this is entertaining. Uh, <laughs> fine. <laughs> hopefully the papers make their way back. Um, I don't know. If anyone has any questions, Unrelated to what people are doing. Yes. Oh, why did it, you have any theory about why Madison lied? I'm not why why uh, Hamilton lied. So there's a you know it, it was it was years after the original essays were published, so he could have been forgetful. He did have a lot in his mind as he's a god. Well, essays. Uh, well, yeah, their essays. This one theory, you know, he's about to do Aaron Burr, so maybe he's kind of preoccupied. <laughs> the other theory would just be that he was kind of, you know, both of them really, but also Hamilton kind of known to be a bit audacious and kind of taking credit for as much as he could. Um, but it's not just Muscle and Wallace, kind of after they published the results, the story went back and it's more or less kind of like uh, this result and other statistical results that Madison definitely was the author and that for whatever reason, Hamilton was over eager and Madison's recollection was, even though it was like 13 years later, which was much, much stronger. So this, on that head-to-head -head setting, it should be about 85% accurate. Uh, on a longer sample size, obviously the error rate goes down and down. But hopefully it's fun to play along with. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, which one of your more interesting or surprising findings? Um, there is really a lot. Of, uh, 
kind of choose from. This book is structured in a way where each chapter is about something different. One chapter is about reading level. Another is just about like book cover design and whether or not authors' books get longer and longer as their career goes on. Um, one result that maybe the general trend wasn't surprising, but just kind of the strength of the uh, finding was interesting was I looked at the reading level of every novel from of a number one bestseller from 1960 to 2014. Um, and the reading level formula is simple. It's just the length of the sentence and then the average length of each sentence in the book and the number of syllables on average in the book. So just a kind of word complexity and sentence complexity. And essentially the most complicated number one bestseller written between 2010 and 2014 would have actually been the least complicated in terms of complexity uh, between 1960 and 1965. So not only was it kind of like a steady decline or up and down that eventually went down, but the decline was so kind of sharp uh, and consistent that really like no book that would have been popular then could have had a chance to be a number one bestseller now. Yes? Um, how can we use uh, simple words instead of like outlier words to... Sure. To so, so this app, again, like, looks at 70 basic words. I guess the immediate reason is that when most of on walls were doing this, they were using 70 basic words and to kind of show that I wasn't making this unnecessarily complicated or anything like that. I kind of wanted to replicate something that they could do in the 1960s. Uh, beyond that, um, these words are good because they're kind of not genre-dependent. You know, an author can change how they're writing. You know, Stephen King wrote it, Richard Bachman. Those are kind of similar thriller-type books, but he had viewed them as uh, books that were not able to be published under his own name because he didn't think that they represented what he wanted to write. But if you kind of go through the numbers um, based on the simple words, you can kind of see his voice kind of still come through in that same way. And then that's just because kind of his sentence structure doesn't change over time. How he describes things doesn't change over time. Writers kind of have tick words, and some of these are a bit, you know, upon, also, uh, would. Maybe some of these words are a bit different, and some authors do have kind of wild fluctuations between one another. Yes? Have you found out what your favorite word is? Uh, I did do the analysis. So one... Uh, <laughs> I'm surprised, right? So in the book, one, when I define favorite word, books that authors use repeatedly throughout all their books, and that kind of eliminates, you know, if you looked at one book, maybe something that's very specific to the plot, I did run it on this book, and unsurprisingly, probably was the word. <laughs> but I think if you like, kept writing more and more books, probably would probably be the number one. Yeah. Um, and if you want, if you want to keep playing, these are now excerpts from random authors. Um, and if you want to do that, if you go into the app and click switch authors, and then load up the screen, uh, just kind of guess which author you think it may be, just based on a brief sample of reading it. Maybe you have some idea, maybe you have no idea. Click on the authors, and then click all authors, and then snapshot text, and then you can do the same process. So you take a picture, and it will guess how likely, compared to the other 20 authors, that author is to be the true author. Yeah. So, do you have any ballparks about what happened with sentence length between the 60s and today? Uh, so, like, so, and and also, I should note that in the reading level decline, uh, since there's two components to that formula, it was possible that the decline maybe was just that sentences were getting simpler, but words were staying the same, or the opposite, where sentences were staying the same, but words were getting simpler. But I went through piecewise and kind of both uh, areas: sentences got shorter and the words got simpler. Uh, I think there's a few things going on. 
that's not to say that everyone's obviously writing that way, but the books that are capable of rising to the top maybe kind of apply to a larger audience of readers and kind of having a very simple, straightforward direct writing style resonates with a larger base of readers. Um, and I think also just kind of in the trend of how, and that's my subjective judgment based on the data, but just how people consume media and everything, um, there's more competition to books and maybe less focus on kind of literary or descriptive nature and poetic style of writing as opposed to more writers expect maybe more action uh, and conflict and things like that, which are less reliant on kind of intricate sentences and sentences that are maybe poetic and a bit longer. Readers expect more. I think, I think readers kind of, like the general base of readers needed to get to the top of the bestseller list um, aren't as game for that. You know, in the 1960s, obviously a lot of the bestsellers were still kind of like Robert Ludlum and uh, I guess he's a bit later, but people who are writing thrillers, um, and obviously the bestsellers now, a lot of thrillers and romances, but back then, there was a bit more skew towards, it was a bit easier for a literary book to rise to the top occasionally, whereas now it's very rare. Oh, yeah. Have you done anything like Hemingway versus Fitzgerald? What were their top words? Sure. So one of the chapters in the book, which is kind of where the title of the book comes from, is I, I guess, took inspiration from a Ray Bradbury quote where he said in an interview, my favorite word is cinnamon because it reminds me of my grandmother's pantry. Um, so I went through and it turned out he uses cinnamon, I've heard the exact word, but about five or six times is likely as you'd expect normally compared to other authors. And also he uses just words like, uh, you know, spice, spearmint, peppermint, lemon, licorice, just like any kind of pantry smell <laughs> at a real extreme rate. So I kind of, kind of tried to define this thing called cinnamon words and kind of build a criteria with how often they use a word and then do they use it across all their books. Um, so for Hemingway and Fitzgerald, I'm not doing it head-to-head, -head, but I'm doing it against kind of the corpus of literature. Uh, so if I could find the correct chapter in here, hopefully not too long. There's a hundred authors that I go through, and I kind of list the words that they use at an extreme rate. And these are usually words that, as opposed to those words, which are function words, these are words which are a bit more kind of uh, ticks or irregularities that you wouldn't expect maybe in any writing, but they use consistently. All right, I've just pulled up the chapter. So Hemingway is con uh, uh, sorry. concierge and a stern, and then Fitzgerald is facetious and muddled. Uh, so hopefully that reads through. There's a few authors that you read, and maybe it doesn't make sense. There's some authors, for example, Jane Austen is civility, fancying, and imprudence. Which I think if you saw those, you may be able to guess there. And that's kind of on the like, very polite uh, side. And then on the other side, you get an author like John Updike uh, and his favorite three words, according to this analysis, were rimmed, prick, and fucked. So kind of a big difference in just kind of uh, the writing style and the tone. Yes? What were a couple of the top books from the 60s and from the um, so from the later period, obviously it's very skewed where it's a lot of, you know, James Patterson, Daniel Steele. Um, I don't have the list of it uh, within the notes here, um, so you'd have to go, I, I cite the website, so you'd have to go to that. Uh, but in the 1960s, I may be able to pull up, I guess there is one chart here which shows authors who had multiple bestsellers. Um, there are some authors I know, like James Meichner, who probably today would not have any chance of getting repeat number one bestsellers because he's a bit more literary. Uh, but a lot of the authors um, are a bit more kind of, as you expect, thriller romance. And I'm, I'm sorry, I can't 
find the exact page that has the chart. Yeah. Yes. What were some other ideas you had for the title? Um, <laughs> I guess the, the working the working title uh, was just writing by the numbers, very direct and straightforward. I think it's a bit more mysterious, but <laughs> uh, very happy. Yeah. You can give us a, like a one liner about sure. your description of men and women writers. You said that there was a difference between the way they wrote. Right. So uh, for the men and women chapter, I guess one kind of thing I wanted to do, because there's a lot of studies kind of looking at social media use and how men and women write differently, and I thought it would be cool since, you know, novels are sure dependent on male and female characters, it's not just like how they write differently, but how they describe uh, the other gender uh, differently. So I guess one kind of big section is kind of very straightforward, but I just look at pronoun use, he versus she, to see kind of the general character balance of the story. I'm um, just looking at those two pronouns, you can get a general sense of you know, how male-focused or how female-focused the book is, you know, The Hobbit has one use of the pronoun she, about 2,000 E's, because Miss, uh, Miss Bilbo Baggins was the only female character uh, in The Hobbit, and everyone else is male. Um, and I kind of went through the classic books as ranked by librarians, and these are kind of the books that, you know, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, The Great Gatsby, books that you'd expect to be taught in, like, high school and middle school and college. Um, and the general sense was that these books... Uh, for female writers are about 50-50 in terms of their pronoun usage, about pretty even balance of male and female characters. Uh, and for the male writers of these classic novels, it was usually around 75 to 80% male focused. Um, so obviously a big difference there. There's lots of reasons it's not, it could be that books that were more skewed the other way just haven't reached classic status because of historical reasons or because of the world we live in, just it's hard to write a novel. Uh, especially, you know, 100 years ago, that was more female-focused. But there's a huge difference there. And then one of this quick thing I look at in the book was kind of the words. Um, for example, uh, the word smile is much more likely to be used to describe a female as opposed to, say, chuckled or grinned, which is very male-centric. And these aren't, like, gendered words. But for literary writers, they kind of assign these verbs kind of unknowingly to one sex more often than the other. Are you aware that like half the comments on your review online are nerves freaking out because there is no Miss Bilbo Baggins in the ring in the Hobbit? Uh, Bilbo Baggins like never got married. That's the only thing anyone's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't know. If it's, I can't tell how true you are, but there, uh, there is, Bilbo have a. Uh, I think it's his mom. Yeah. His mom. Okay. Mrs. <laughs> Mrs. Mrs. Baggins. Mrs. Baggins. <laughs> You can retract all your comments. <laughs> <laughs> that's all. I, I guess that's all I prepared. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoy playing around with the samples. If you've run the app and worked, uh, didn't want to raise your hand, figure it out. You can run it again and then come check out the charts to see uh, how accurate it was or not. Uh, but thank you all for coming out to Skylight. I had a good time. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.